Like I've heard people say like, how big a deal, what else were they gonna do? They had to fire him. Like, no, they didn't. They've never, like, this is unprecedented and as far as I know. The same people who don't want you to pay attention are the same ones who tell you sports are really important, right? So then you're like, well, they are really important. So when this thing keeps happening and we keep talking about it through the lens of sports and we need to deal with it, whether or not you know it, you know a survivor of sexual mm. violence. Welcome to From the Sidelines, the podcast that gets you just close enough to the games you love. My name is Alexander Goot, and I want to thank everyone for joining me. We have an episode of the podcast that I am particularly excited for and proud of, and that has everything to do with the guest who joins me, Jessica Luther. Back in August of 2015, Jessica, along with Dan Solomon, published a piece at Texas Monthly titled Silence at Baylor. And as any football fans or college sports fans are undoubtedly familiar with, at this point, that piece, as well as continued reporting from Jessica and Dan, from Diana Moskovitz at Deadspin, from the incredible investigative unit at ESPN's Outside the Lines, all of that work sparked a great deal of change. And specifically in the last few weeks, it saw leadership turnover at Baylor University, not simply within the football program with head coach Art Bryles departing, but also the university in general with President Ken Starr out from his post in the university as well. And Jessica and her reporting had a lot to do with that. And she was kind enough to take time out of her very busy schedule to discuss the story, to discuss her reporting process and what brought her into the Baylor story in the first place, and to discuss more broadly the work that she has done for years on sexual assault and sexual violence at college campuses and specifically tied into university football culture. So it's a really interesting conversation that touches on the way in which these stories are reported on and discussed. We talked about her upcoming book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, which will be published in the months ahead and which is focused on so many of these issues of sexual violence on college campuses. And Jessica is as important and tremendous a reporter on these subjects and a number of others as as anyone in the country. And it was really an honor to chat with her and uh, just spend a little time unpacking and, and learning from all the wisdom and experience that she has accumulated on these subjects over the last few years. So encourage everyone to take a listen. I thank everyone for supporting the podcast I would also encourage everyone to go back into some of our past archives, some great chats in uh, weeks prior with Will Leach, with Ty Schalter, with Ian Levy, Julie DeCaro, and with Eric Malinowski recently on the Golden State Warriors, who after a couple games in the NBA Finals, I think it's uh, safe to say, are, are still looking pretty good to complete the NBA championship run. So encourage everyone to go back into the archives. But for now, without any further ado, here is Jessica Luther. And I am thrilled and honored to be joined by author for a number of publications, including Texas Monthly, Vice Sports. Her work has appeared at Vocative. Her work has appeared all over the place. And she is also the author of a book that will be publishing this fall, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape, joined by Jessica Luther. Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I guess the first question, and, and really the only place to start, um, as as most who are listening to this, I'm sure, will be familiar with uh, the events at Baylor University that have mm-hmm. unfolded over the last week that have dominated the headlines. Let me just start on on just a broad level. What what has this week been like for you, watching this this all unfold as someone who obviously has been 
as closely immersed and and wrapped up in this as anyone from a reporting perspective. Yeah, unreal is probably the best <laughs> word. Um, you know, you do this work and you hope it has an impact and makes change. And sometimes there's little things. I've never experienced anything like this. Like the idea that Dan Solomon and I, who we wrote a piece together about Baylor back in August for Texas Monthly, that sort of got the ball rolling on all of this stuff. Um, the idea that we have affected this kind of change, that we had any kind of impact like this has just been unreal. <laughs> you say unreal, and, and I'm curious, and, and I can only imagine, and, and I'm curious to just get your perspective. I mean, we... You know, from the outside and, and people who obviously are not as immersed and and closely, um, maybe as closely following this as you, it, it's been known for some time, obviously, that your work had triggered this investigation at Baylor, had triggered uh, this report being worked on, and that there may be some fallout. But I'm curious, mm-hmm. for, for you and Dan, was there, was there a, ever really a point before this announcement that you actually thought some serious change and some, you know, that that the departure of Ken Starr and Art Bryles and a lot of these figures was really in play here? Or did that did that take you by surprise when those moves were actually made? Uh, by surprise, like all of this has mm. been very surprising. I just don't, you know, it's I think it's just rare in general for people in power to be held accountable. Um, you know, stuff like this, it's so easy to focus specifically on the individuals who are doing the violence, right? And just say, it's these guys, they did it. They're the ones responsible. That's where the buck stops. Um, we're used to that. And so, I, you know, Dan and I were about to publish a big thing about Baylor sometime soon. So we've been reporting on this for a few months mm-hmm. and, you know, talking to sources almost daily about what was happening. So we understood that there had been a briefing about the Pepper Hamilton findings. That's the outside law firm that Baylor had hired Mm -hmm. to look into this. Like, you know, we knew that stuff was happening, but it was very hard to get a sense of who was actually going to be in trouble, what the extent of that punishment would look like. And specifically with Art Bryles, the head coach at Baylor, I mean, until I think it was a Thursday, right? Until that Thursday morning, I had been told that from people who knew what they were talking about, that he was going to be fine. Mm. And and so then I woke up on Thursday and some a source had contacted me very early. um, And when I talked to them, they said that they heard that he was out. And I didn't actually believe it until ESPN (laughs) confirmed (laughs) it. So, um, yeah, it was... It's very surprising. It's very surprising when people in power are held accountable. It, it seems like the very nature of this, and, and you've written about this, uh, Diana Moskovitz at Deadspin and a number of others, has been very much, um, it, it, it almost has felt like a process of figuring out the fallout as they're going in terms of Baylor, just mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, as you mentioned, initially there were announcements that President Ked Starr would be out, but Art Bryles would probably stay on as head football coach. On Thursday, we get the the announcement that, in fact, Art Bryles is out, but the remainder of the coaching staff is remaining. You talked about in, initially it looked like a defensive coordinator may be promoted to interim coach. Turns out that's not going to be the case. Uh, Groby is, is brought in now as the interim coach from Wake Forest. We learned that initially after a plan of 
Ken Starr is going to be moved over to a chancellor role. Well, it turns out that's not the case. He says yesterday, Wednesday, in an mm-hmm. interview with ESPN that he's leaving. Do, do you get the sense that all of this is sort of, I, I mean, I guess the question is, right, from your perspective, is this just a case of Baylor is still figuring out how to deal with this and figuring out what they are going to be able to to get away with in a certain sense in terms of public pressure? Are they still just grappling with potential consequences from the NCA? Why, why do you think this whole process has been so messy in terms of how they're actually going to go forward? Yeah, I mean, what I know about this is basically speculation. Like, I haven't heard very much about what's actually going on in the ground at Baylor. So I my guess is that they are sort of making it up as they go, trying to figure out how to, you know, keep their football program together at the same time that they are trying. They look like they're trying to take responsibility. Um, you know, that's a long-term thing, mm-hmm. actually taking responsibility. So it's hard in these first days to really... Um, say much about that part of it but yeah who's in charge there like who's making these decisions how are they making them um you know how rapidly are they implementing them you know at what point did they know they were going to fire art briles were they prepping before they did that um you know do we know when groby was first contacted you know i the bennett stuff the defensive coordinator possibly being the interim head coach it looked like they might have not gone with that because of the response from the public. And they realized that would be a bad idea. You know, it, there's so much we could speculate about what's going on. And I, I don't know, I don't know what it's like right now in Waco as they're trying to figure this out. And I'm not surprised that that we've never really seen this. Like Mm. they certainly seem to think Bryles is going to be there, right? They were Everyone was operating under that um, up until, it appears, last Thursday. Well, he had, he had become, and we're so familiar with this at, at some point, obviously in college football, in, in college sports, and sports in general, that when a coach has this sort of on-the-field success, they grow into an almost messianic figure at the university. And it's, it's hard right. to think that anything can can bring them down and get in the way of that, particularly, as you've noted in your reporting, a university like Baylor, which has had such ambitions over the last few years to grow, to become a big-time football program, to become a big-time university. I want to back up um, and and just take it, well, back in time a little bit, um, if we can, just to the beginning. And the initial piece that kicked this off, and, and for anyone listening who has not read it, Certainly encourage everyone to go back entitled Silence at Baylor uh, that you and Dan Solomon wrote focused on the revelation at the time that defensive and defensive and Sam Ukuachu was being investigated for sexual assault. And what was remarkable about the piece, I think, and I was just rereading it yesterday and, and going back and what's so remarkable for those not familiar. It's obviously not just the fact that the university was talking so sort of plainly and openly about how they expected this player back on the field for their team soon, despite the fact that there was this accusation of sexual assault. But but as you go through the piece, and, and you and Dan did such a wonderful job of noting this, what's remarkable was just not just the silence at Baylor, as, as you allude to in the headline, but the silence all around the university and the campus community and the media 
And the fact that this was something that was basically just not known. The fact that a player who was expected to be a major contributor for a top Division I football power, that these accusations had been made against him and that the press was unaware, that this was something that was essentially just completely uncovered to that point. And I'm curious, just going going back to that, I mean, if you can explain, if you can, what started you and Dan in that direction, how uh-huh. you initially... Um, found yourselves pursuing this piece and and what you found in terms of how this went unreported for so long. Yeah, so Sam Ukuwachu was a transfer from Boise. He had a really good freshman year at Boise and then uh, ended up at Baylor for the next year, had to sit out because of the transfer rule. It was, um, he had only been on campus for a couple months when he was reported of female soccer player at Baylor in October, 2013 reported him. Um, reported that he had raped her. Uh, Baylor did their own internal investigation. They didn't find any. They found it more likely that he hadn't done it than that he had. Waco PD looked into it. The case kind of sat around. And then sometime in the spring of 2014, it got forwarded to the DA's office. He's indicted in June 2014. He doesn't play again. They say something about, you know, off-field issues, you know, that kind of vague stuff. <laughs> and then, like you said, then it in June of 2015, at the time, he was about two weeks away from going to trial. And the defensive coordinator, Phil Bennett, publicly said that he expected Sam back on the field in a month. No, you know, we all know that he knew that Sam was about to go to mm. trial for sexual assault. And so then in August 2015, he was convicted. Um, August 5th, I got a phone call from a source who had a tip for me about a football player at Baylor who was about to go to trial for sexual assault. And the source had Sam Ukuwachi's name. And I, you know, I was like, okay, I'll look into that. Waco's not very far from where I live, about an hour and a half from Austin. And I Googled his name like any good investigative journalist would. And I literally couldn't find anything. Nothing, not a blotter, not anything. Not, you know, like all the combinations that I thought of, arrest, indictment, trial, like nothing. Mm. And so I contacted Dan Solomon, who is a writer at large for Texas Monthly and one of my best friends and is just really good at Google. <laughs> I don't know like <laughs> what it is about Dan and his Googling there, there's abilities. There's art to that without a doubt. There is. And, and so I've asked him in the past to, to Google stuff for me that I can't locate. And so it was Dan who found the trial docket that said that Ukuwachi was at that point two weeks away from going to trial. And we were just so, you know, confused as to how it could be this close and how this guy, you know, once we figured out that he was a big deal as far as his playing ability, um, we got in the car. We decided we were going to go to Waco and see what we could find. So I think between the time that I got the tip and we got in the car was maybe an hour and a half. And Mm -hmm. so we made it to Waco around, I don't know, three in the afternoon. We went to the county clerk's office and, at that point, this is August, the trial had been continued a couple times because the assistant district attorney in Waco had found, had requested a bunch of documentation from Boise about what had happened around mm-hmm. his transfer. And so literally there was just like hundreds of pages of documentation sitting at the county clerk's office just waiting for someone to read it, I guess. I mean, it was, um, I mean... I would love to take like lots of credit for digging stuff up, 
but it was just sort of we got to it and no one else had and hiding in plain sight as it were yeah right um it was that night or so we were driving back to austin when the waco tribune wrote their very first story about the ukawachi trial Hmm. on august 5th and so that was two and i think we published on the 20th so 15 days later which is one of the fastest turnarounds i've ever had on a piece like this um it helped that i was working with dan and he's very good at what he does (laughs) um yeah and i i mean we didn't it was hard even we knew we had a story like we knew we did it at the same time because it had never been reported and very it's easy to question yourself mm. you know like is there something here we're just kind of like i hope someone cares about this when we write it which was wow what an understatement we were not prepared at all like we did not have a game plan in place for who would do what interviews. Like we hadn't talked about any of that because mm. we just weren't expecting it. And so we published on a Thursday. Sam Bukawachu was convicted hours later. So I think, you know, that combo, um, it was a big deal. And then the fact that the court sort of backed up the fact that he was guilty, uh, gave a lot more, uh, weight to the arguments that we were making yeah. about what had happened at Baylor. I, I'm sure there's a feeling of having, you know, not being an investigative reporter myself, but but sort of obviously just just speculating on this second hand. But I'm sure there's a certain feeling of, wait a minute, if this is as important as we think it is, why has it taken so long? Why has no one else found this? Uh, it, must have been yeah. a feeling of just w- w- wait a minute, like there, some somebody has to have this. There has to be something out there. There's no way a story of this importance and significance, when as you mentioned, the coaching staff is talking about this player is going to return in a matter of weeks. How has this completely slipped under the radar? Right. It, I mean, and then I think it was the Monday of trial. We were in jury selection that day in Waco when Diana Moskovitz wrote her piece of deadspin mm-hmm. and. You know, we were just waiting for someone to report the stuff we were going to report on. Um, you know, Texas Monthly is a magazine and they don't sort of move. I mean, that 15 day turnaround was really impressive. And just, you know, kudos to the Texas Monthly editorial team. Like they are stellar, mm. uh, but they don't you know, it's a magazine. So they don't move quite as fast all the time as me, like a deadspin would. Sure. Right. Um, and so there was a part of us that was like thinking on the on one hand we knew we had a story so we thought oh god someone's gonna break it before we do um which is we didn't break it we broke it open right there is a difference there absolutely um but uh there was also this feeling of like maybe people don't care about this (laughs) like maybe this isn't news um so on some level you know it's hard to be like diana published her thing and I love Diana Moskovitz and I love her work. And it was like, oh man, there's our story. It's gone now. Um, which wasn't true. She didn't have the same access to stuff that we did um, because we could drive there. Um, but, you know, to see people care was it was like, okay, well, some people care and then mm. we're going to have a different audience than Deadspin does and all this kind of stuff. And um, yeah, and it just became a thing. It became a thing. <laughs> well, there, there's been a, and, and you mentioned Diana's work, and I think um, for for anyone following it, there's been a very 
uh, sort of impressive quality to the extent that the reporting that you have done and Diana and some of the work at Outside the Lines and their enterprise unit and, and yeah. all of this has sort of come together and and right over the, the weeks and months we've had different revelations and we've had, you know, these stories sort of, I, I mean, it's obviously very difficult, difficult subject matter, but in terms of the reporting, just complementing and strengthening each other as, you know, all of you have have dug at this story and pulled these threads and sort of unpacked this over over a period of months. I want to ask because it's something you alluded to going all the way back to that original piece, Silence at Baylor, talking about how it's impossible to look at the story and look at all that has happened here without also considering the culture at Baylor University and what a unique situation it is. And I think it does speak to, you know, we've seen oftentimes that it's an incorrect assumption, but there's an assumption that I think many people make who are more casual sports fans that, you know, okay, a Division I football program, especially at this high level competing for, you know, places in the in what was the bowl championship series and what's now the college football playoff, that, that nothing can go on there that people don't know about, that there's so much scrutiny in these programs, that everything is in mm-hmm. plain sight, that, that everything is being checked out. Talk about, if, if you can, how, as you alluded to in the piece, what's unique about the environment and the atmosphere at Baylor and how this school that has been trying to grow and move into that tier of university how that has had a lot of impact on the the reporting and the silence around this situation. Yeah, um, well, there's sort of two things going on in the last decade at Baylor, which would be just the overall building up of the university. So, you know, Dan was looking into this and for most of the 171 years, 77 years, I can't quite remember the number that Baylor's been around, they didn't really have a debt. They were, you know, they had the money, they built the building kind of thing. Mm. Uh, In the last 10 years or so, 15 years, they have really been ambitious on in growing the university physically, um, you know, tearing down buildings, renovating, building new ones, um, really trying to, you know, create facilities to match the level that they want the university to be at. And this sort of colloquial way that we talk about it is that they want Baylor to be, you know, the Notre Dame of the South Mm. sort of thing. And, and so like tuition has tripled in the last, I don't know, definitely the last 10 years. So it's three times as more expensive. They're taking on debt as a university. Um, so they have, that's sort of generally like you can go and see this like gigantic new science building. It's like 500,000 square feet. It's gigantic. Um, They also have a brand new football stadium that opened three years ago, August, that cost $266 million uh, that, you know, they built for Art Bryles, basically. Mm -hmm. He came in um, after the, you know, there was the horrific scandal with the basketball team. In the early 2000s, where one a former the player Dave murdered Bliss scandal. Yeah, the Dave Bliss scandal, where the NCAA came in because of sort of just the apparent chaos of that um, of that team and found all kinds of sanctions. Right, like there was a big financial one, and so they replaced their athletic director, um, who's now gone <laughs> because of this latest scandal, and <laughs> and, and then Art Bryles came in 
with the football team, you know, RG3 wins the Heisman. They built him this new stadium. They signed Bryles to a contract through 2023. It's a private university. We don't know exactly how much he was paid, but, you know, probably something like $4 <laughs> million dollars a year. Say, yeah, it was a hefty yeah. paycheck. Yeah. And so you got this gigantic buildup of the football team in particular um, alongside the sort of building of the university. So you have, you know, this the university becoming powerful in specific new ways that are also make it vulnerable, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And financially vulnerable. And then you have this gigantic football program that becomes its own sort of machine in a way that it has never before. And yeah, um, on top of all of that, Baylor is a Baptist university. I think it might be the biggest Baptist university in the world and has a sort of conservative culture attached to it around, you know, prudish culture around things like sex um, that make it so, you know, the administration doesn't really want to deal with it. Um before they had a Title IX coordinator and their new Title IX policy, there were lots of stories of women going in to report. And when they found out that the women had been drinking, they would the women would get in trouble mm. for breaking the rule about drinking. Uh, so who's going to report, right? Um, there are there are rules against having sex at Baylor if you're not having sex with your spouse. So there's this sort of weird combo of things going on that make Baylor a specific, um, it's got its own stuff for why this is happening right now and why it seems to have been so exponentially, um, why it's so exponential and what's happened. You know, I am always really careful to say that it is certainly not just Baylor. Obviously I wrote a book on this. Absolutely. Um, So there are definitely things going on at Baylor that are specific to Baylor. I also think there are systemic issues around college football that make this um, less surprising for someone like me who researches this a lot. Well, you you allude to it and you touch on this and and it's true and it's important, this notion. And and I think what you were just talking about in terms of a culture that sort of has these these policies and these sort of archaic mentalities in place that make it more difficult and more unlikely for women to report sexual assault and to be honest about their campus experiences. And it's something, I mean, you're right. We've, I know there's been a lot of, of talk about this. BYU is another university where yes. they're honor code. And there's been a lot of conversation about the fact that, you know, the very nature of it and the fact that, you know, these rules against against drinking, against sex, basically prevent women from being able to speak openly and honestly about what's happened here. And and right, it sounds like a similar thing was was going on in Baylor. And I guess the 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 question that that raises is how do we fundamentally get to a place where these universities can can truly and this is a big question I know for sure but how do we get to a, a place where these universities where these sort of rules and policies can be put in place and managed not by people who don't understand them not by people who don't realize mm-hmm. the implication that they might have on reporting of sexual assault but can be implemented in a way that women and victims feel free to share their stories and to tell their truth of what happened. Yeah, man. 
I mean, like one of the things about this is that uh, culturally we have trouble with people reporting this crime, right? That it's one of the most underreported crimes just across the board. I think there was a um, report here in Texas last year that just in in Texas across the board, only 10% of sexual assault victims report to law enforcement. And so that's just the state Mm. in general. And so, you know, layer on top of that sort of young women in college on their own for the first time. Um, yeah, it's, it's not good as far as like who's reporting just, um, there's a, and just on a top lot of that, the, the, the adoration and the, I mean, who is more sort of right adored and given benefit of the doubt and put up mm-hmm. on a pedestal than a successful division one football, football program at these universities. I mean, you are talking right. about going after essentially a, a, you know, community and, a, and an organization that is beloved on these campuses. And, and I'm sure that that only makes that dynamic worse. Right. You hear a lot from women saying they didn't report because he was a football player. And why mm. would you? And they're basically proven correct all the time. Right. So the Pepper Hamilton finding a fact that we saw showed that women were right not to tell <laughs> if it was a football player because they weren't going to be believed. They were going to be silenced um, that nothing would happen, you know, in some, at least in one case, a woman was retaliated against, um, you know, those are real fears for these young women. And so as far as like how it changes, you know, I think this is the question probably about all of this. Mm. Um, and I don't, within the university, and Baylor has suggested they will be doing this, uh, there needs to be better integration between the athletic department and everybody else. So part of what appears to have happened here is that football just didn't have anyone overseeing it that could stop it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's possible because of the way that the structure worked that they were able to keep it from other parts of the university. Um, and so I don't know what they're going to do. Like, I, I don't understand. I'm looking forward to seeing how they implement that, um, what kind of solutions they come up with in order to have better oversight over athletics in particular. Uh, I always sort of wonder, and this is like a general thing about Title IX, which is, you know, a federal law. But every individual university then hires their own coordinator And so the Title IX coordinators of these places are getting paid by the university that they are supposed to be on in a lot of ways, like investigating. Mm. Right. And I just sort of wonder why they're not federal employees so that they're not. That there's this conflict of interest is not. Yeah. So if you Mm. right, if you see that the football team is protecting, like if you get wind that the football team might have protected somebody you don't have to worry about your paycheck if you go up against the most powerful entity on campus in order to protect victims. Um, I don't know. I've never, I don't know if anyone, if that's even a possible change, but I always wonder about that when I report on this. I title nine coordinators, uh, most of the time when I talk to them, they're just very kind people. They do care very much about what they're doing. They care about victims. They just often don't have the resources you know like I did a profile about the University of Texas Title IX coordinator and that there's like 50,000 students this person's supposed to teach consent to and you just say like what <laughs> like how, how does that work mm. um and then on top of that you know they're doing the education and then the reaction to anyone who comes in to report it's just they, they don't have the resources they don't have the time to do the work that they need to do. And 
And then, so how do they even complain about that? Like, who, who, who are you going to say that this is not enough? This isn't good enough. Um, you have to worry about your job, right? Yeah. So I'm not, um, the very system through which Title IX is implemented, um, in that particular way, I think if we could change that somehow. It's due for some change. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, I, I want to just expand a little bit on, on something else that, that you're starting to address here and that I think is a big part of the story and, and talking about the ways in which uh, the athletic department and the university needs to integrate and cooperate with and work uh, in an effective tandem with law enforcement and other organizations here. I, I want to, I, I sort of knew going into this, I wanted to just sort of uh, give you the opportunity to, to, talk a little bit about, because there is this particularly, I think, um, sort of ignorant, misguided strain that you will hear sometimes, and I know you've heard it plenty uh, surrounding these stories, that somehow this, these cases and these situations are strictly a matter for law enforcement, and that in reality, we need the universities and the athletic departments to just completely get out of the way and, you know, pass allegations on to law enforcement and then stand down and essentially not have their role to play. Explain if, if you can, because as someone who's been covering this for so long, who, who knows sure. the situation so well, why that is, uh, number one, why it is simply illegal and, and <laughs> not how the system functions, but also why it is such an ineffective and bad idea and, and how things need to actually work in these university com- uh, environments. Sure. Um, so Title IX is, you know, it's a federal law and it's specifically a civil rights law. And I think this is what gets lost a lot in the conversation. What's happening at universities is they often structure their response to a report of sexual violence in the they, they base it off the criminal justice system. Right. So it looks like they're doing the same work, but they're actually not. So the job of the university is to protect the civil rights of every student. And so. The reason that universities have to, under federal law, investigate claims of sexual violence or domestic violence or interpersonal violence, any of this kind of stuff, is the idea that if you don't, you are not making, you are taking away everyone's equal access mm. to education, which is what universities and high schools and middle schools um, have to do in order to meet federal law. And so they're basically determining whether or not the they're making sure that that everyone has access to education. Yeah. Right. Including anyone. I mean, a lot of what you hear when you talk to survivors, they actually don't necessarily want these people punished. Right. A lot of time they know these guys. Right. You know, your perpetrator Mm. Um, punishment is not necessarily the outcome that survivors are looking for, they're looking for stuff like, I don't want to see them when I go to the cafeteria. I don't want to have to interact with that person in a classroom setting. I don't want to have to worry that I'm going to see them in my dorm, right? Like basic stuff around just living Mm. in that space that allows them to go to school, do their homework and graduate. Right. Um, And that's what these civil rights are about that universities have to look after. And that's what title nine demands. Right. And so that's what they're actually trying to do with it. They are modeling it though, after the criminal justice system. So it becomes confusing in practice in that way. And so in the criminal justice system, in order to be found guilty of a crime, you have to have, um, 
beyond a reasonable doubt, which is an incredibly high threshold for evidence, right? And but that's not how it works at the university. You only need preponderance of evidence, which is a 51% chance that it happened. Mm. Right. And then that's enough to say that um, something has to be done to deal with whatever has taken place. And so um, you hear a lot about normally men, you know, these, we normally hear perpetrators as men and victims as women, which is of course not always true, but it's mainly these, men who are suing universities because they don't feel like their due process was correct under the law. Mm -hmm. Um, Due process works differently, though, in these kind of civil rights. Absolutely. So it's all pretty confusing on its face if you are trying to make sense of it, if your understanding of how it should work is the criminal justice system, which most of us law and order watchers, (laughs) that's our sort of idea. Mm. So there is this strain of argument that universities should just not do this because they don't investigate murder. So why would they investigate sexual violence? Um, I mean, of course, that doesn't... If someone's murdered, obviously, their civil rights are not <laughs> an issue for the university to manage. Um, but, it, but it is, and I think you alluded to it, you know, so, so perfectly there, is, you know, if a murder takes place on a college campus, yes, of course, there's going to be a, be a police investigation, but the university still has a responsibility to take the steps and take the actions to make sure that its community, that its students are protected. And, and right. you allude to it perfectly that that often, of course, a criminal investigation is a component of that. But there are plenty of other responsibilities that a university has to just make sure, as you say, long, you know, maybe long short of a criminal complaint or a criminal outcome. But is this student, is this accuser protected? Are they, as you say, going to be able to continue on with their university career and not have to encounter this person, not have to feel uncomfortable on a daily basis? There's there's all these sorts of important roles that the university still needs to play. Right, definitely. And I just think, you know, yeah, universities aren't good at this. Like I would be the first person with all my reporting to say that they have a mm-hmm. long way to go to get this right. And maybe they never will. This is a, the answer, though, to the idea that the cops will handle this and specifically that the cops will do a better job handling this is just not borne out. Right. Like mm-hmm. we could talk for too long about all the issues with how law enforcement responds to reports of sexual violence, domestic violence, interpersonal violence. Like there is this massive effort underway in the last like probably decade to retrain police officers so that they don't come to the table with a victim thinking they're lying, right? Like police officers think victims lie. That's where they start from because we have these really messed up cultural ideas about this kind of crime. And so we know that the stats are horrible for how many, you know, rapists are actually charged, how many are arrested, how many are prosecuted, how many are convicted, how many actually serve jail time. Like the, the fall off is so precipitous. There's very little punishment that actually happens in the criminal justice system mm-hmm. around this crime. And so the idea that if we just forfeit everything to that system, it will all be better and more fair isn't even true. So 
It's a really easy answer. We really like, depending on the criminal justice system as the answer for how as a community and a society we will respond to violations. Um, but, you know, I think we're in a moment generally right now where there's a lot of questioning around if that's true, not just with sexual violence, but just sort of generally the bias of law enforcement and how that affects the work that they're doing, um, you know, from Black Lives Matter all the way to this this issue. So um, I just really bristle when I hear people say, well, the answer is just law enforcement, mm. because I know from plenty of survivors, they're they're much more terrified to go to the cops than they are to report to Title IX, and they're not good about either one. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. And I do think universities should care about this. The idea that they shouldn't be in the, in the business of trying to make a safer campus for everybody, especially when we, I mean, this is a gendered crime. Like, obviously, all genders perpetrate this violence and all genders are victims of it but it skews pretty heavily in one direction and yeah and so i also you know it, it makes sense to me that this would be the thing where we would draw the line and say universities don't have to care about that um well and you you hit on me. <laughs> you, you hit on something i think very important and very troubling which is that and and it's a tendency we all have and and on some level it's you know it's understandable given the, you know, the serious nature of these crimes, given how hard they are, without a doubt, to navigate between the universities and the criminal justice system. But I think this goes to just this very troubling trend we all have as humans, that when something is difficult, when something is messy, and when it's a challenge, as as obviously dealing with these accusations and confronting the problem of sexual assault and sexual violence has been, there's a tendency to sort of throw hands up in the air and just say, well, this hasn't been working well enough. This clearly is not mm -hmm. functioning fully. Right. So let's just, you know, it, it, let's just get out of this. We we need to just, you know, take a completely different approach and, and oftentimes <laughs> wash our hands of this. And in reality, no, the solution is to do better. It's not to somehow step away and abdicate responsibility uh, when these incidents right. take place. Yeah, and I just think it's ridiculous to think that there will be some kind of magic perfect system, mm -hmm. especially around in a society where we are just so terrible to people who come forward to report just in general. So this idea, you know, one of the things that I hate more than anything is like, well, obviously, if we knew that he raped her, then we would throw that person in prison. Like if we just knew it, then everything would then it would be fine. It's like. People, I mean, there are always people who defend <laughs> convicted rapists, right? Like, even when that happens, there are people who don't believe because mm -hmm. they think she lied or there's not evidence or blah, blah, blah. Like, there's just that idea of this, like, sort of perfect crime. And then we're going to react um, when there just isn't. There's not a perfect victim. There's not, there's always some reason that you can pick it apart. It's not going to be good enough. Um, we don't believe women generally <laughs> like forget when they're reporting violence. Mm. Like there's just, it's just so it's just not based in any sort of actual reality. It's this sort of theoretical idea we have about justice and we really, really force it on this one particular type of crime. Um, and it's, 
you know, it's hard for me not to imagine that's gendered. Well, we talk about and and specifically talking about these crimes, and it sort of makes for a, a logical transition to go a little bit wider than specifically the situation at Baylor. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about, for anyone unfamiliar, um, in September, in just a few months, uh, Jessica's book titled Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. Uh, will be publishing, and I know this is a project that you've obviously been been working on for some time, and is I would imagine in many ways a a culmination of the work that you've been doing for many years in this area. For for anyone unfamiliar, um, let me just have you give basically like a little description of of what is the sort of overall um, purpose and, and scope of this book and what did you set out to accomplish with it and, and what can people expect when this publishes in September? Yeah, um, the book is has a real sort of it's about patterns. It's about themes and around this one particular issue of college football and sexual assault. And I have tr- I have, I think, like 100 I haven't counted recently, 115, 120, maybe now cases of college football and sexual assault going back to 1974. And so I look at the patterns that emerge over how many years is that? 25, 35, 40 years. Um, And over the four decades. Thank you. Um, Not just, I mean, like I found that there's a, one of the big things is that there's a lot of gang rape um, when it involves football players. Um, much more so than any sort of other stat around gang rapes that I've ever found. But in particular, it looks at how coaches and universities have responded, how the NCAA has responded or not responded, how the media writes about this over time. And to look at the patterns that emerge, how people react and the damage that that type of pattern does and how it just recreates the problem or at least recreates the culture that allows the problem to continue. And then there's about a third of the book where I tried to do solutions. Um, mm. I it's solutions are hard for me. I'm, I'm a journalist. I don't, you know, I'm a historian and a journalist. So that part of the book is much easier for me. Um, but I do try to say like, if we could fix, if I was in charge of the world, like these are the kind of things mm, that we would fix some, and it yeah. would be, yeah. And, and it could be better. And then, you know, I've actually, we're about to print the book. So I've had to keep rewriting the conclusion because my conclusion was about Baylor. So I have this sort of moment where I can say like stuff changes possible. <laughs> like you actually can have the most powerful person on campus held accountable for the system that he has created or the culture that he has created. Um, So it, yeah, it's a real thematic look to try to really drive home that there is no isolation when it comes to this. We want so badly to imagine that each one of these cases is alone. And if we just deal with that one case, then it's over. And Mm. that, in fact, it it does not function like that at all. And that this is just an ongoing issue um, because of the way that the system is set up. I want to hit on uh, something you talked about there, too, that I think is is very important and that is what makes this book so important is talking about the culture specifically surrounding sexual assault on college campuses. And it's another notion um, that I hear sometimes that I think is just so it's just so important to challenge and dispel. And that is one of, you know, and it's and it's often used as a 
basically apology for what is going on in a lot of these situations is, well, you know, sexual assault and sexual violence, that is just an issue around the country in general. And to sort of focus on specifically a problem with college football culture or college sports culture is a mistake. And while, yes, obviously, sexual assault and violence and, you know, treatment of women in general, of course, are broader issues in our culture and society. But I know this this book is going to, and that's an important piece of this book, is, as you alluded to, gang rape, the culture around football coaches and football teams basically not being there for victims, encouraging victims not to report, doing everything they can to protect their players and their program. All of these specific issues surrounding college sports, and yes, they need to be addressed in their own specific, comprehensive way, despite the fact that these are wider national problems. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing. This whole conversation is always so interesting to me because it's like, you know, the same people who don't want you to pay attention are the same ones who tell you sports are really important, right? So then (laughs) you're like, well, they are really important. So when this thing keeps happening and we keep talking about it through the lens of sports and we need to deal with it, um... I, I, you know, it's, it's the same. So when anytime I write about a school, everyone says, well, this happens everywhere. This happens at all the schools. <laughs> so are you going to report on all the schools? Which I'm like, yes, I am. But, <laughs> and you absolutely have. And anyone I, right, right, I, challenging you I, that is clearly not that. paid attention to your work. But the thing that gets me, and I wrote a tweet about this with Baylor, because there was a lot of this with Baylor when it all first started to fall apart recently. Um, it's like, yeah. It happens everywhere, but it all it happened mm-hmm. at Baylor. Like it it happened there. So why would you not want to fix that? Like, why are you rooting for this team <laughs> if you know that this is a problem? And so I mean, like part of the frame like the 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 biggest frame on the book, the sort of opening and closing of the book is about how much I love college football. Mm. Oh, I'm a Florida State alumni and I went to every football game when I was in college and I care about that team and I need that team to not be doing this so I can love the sport that I want. You know, I want to love it and I, I want it to be better. And so it's very strange to me to do that thing where you're like, throw your arms up. Cause you're like, well, it happens everywhere. It happens in other places. Or, you know, it's like, if you try to, if you try to say, well, we need to deal with this sexism that's leading to violence in America. And then people are like, well, it's worse than this other country. And you're just like, where does that end? <laughs> um, like we have to start somewhere and actually makes more sense to start small, go local on these kind of issues and work out from there. So, I yeah, that kind of it's well, weird it's, the idea that like sports don't matter and except that you really do think they matter and that's why you're so mad at me about this. Mm-hmm. Um and so then I'm telling you I'm gonna I care about this because sports do matter and this is a thing inside of sports and then you're like, Oh well, it happens in other places. It's like yeah, of course it does. But the other thing about college, I mean like we have this, you know, there's a lot of things going on with why we focus on college sexual assault. In general, you know, part of that being sort of us imagining the victim as a young white woman. Um, and but it's also a really interesting place. Like it's it has a reputation for being safe. 
Like we all think we're going to send our kids to mm. college and we'll be safe there. It's also a confined space. Like we're talking about, you know, a university of 16,000 students trying to figure out how to manage the problem of sexual violence. That is so much easier than, say, the state of Texas with 26 million people trying to figure out how they're going to manage the problem of sexual violence or, you know, the United States of America figuring it out. So it in some level, it makes sense to me that these are little incubators for this problem in particular. Um and good, like that would be great if someplace figures out how to do it. <laughs> like, Absolutely. let's export that. You know, that would be amazing. If there are lessons that can be taken in a broader yeah. sense, without a doubt. Yeah. So uh, all that stuff, everything bothers me. <laughs> That's what I feel like. <laughs> well, it's it's. I mean, you hit on it perfectly, and it's something that you know. It, it's a tendency we see on all sorts of issues, but specifically in the conversation surrounding sports and college sports and sexual assault. And it's just all too often that the response from people in all sorts of different fields, sports writers, people across the country, is a reaction to some story like this that takes some form of, yeah, but. Yeah, but this happens Mm -hmm. at other schools. Yeah, but this is a broader problem. Yeah, but we are scapegoating this one individual or this one coaching staff. And it's just, I think, long past time for everyone's reaction to evolve beyond that. Of course, this is a big problem. Of course, you know, chances are that similar situations are unfolding at other campuses in other locales. That doesn't mean that we need to brush away and and yeah. look the other way on 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 what's been reported and all the the incredible work that you and others are doing. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't make it's such an easy out. I mean, I see why people do it so they don't have to sort of feel um, responsible, mm. right? So I have this whole thing. I'm really interested in high school and the, this issue at high at the high school level and it's rampant. And I think people don't want to acknowledge that at all. Like, I think people actually have an easier time talking about this on the college level Mm -hmm. than they do the high school. Because if you knew that it was at your high school, you could like literally drive there and like yell at somebody. Mm -hmm. Like who wants to do that? Who wants to be forced to confront these issues? Yeah. Who wants to actually deal with this? So even though we hear story after story of abusive coaches or, you know, they call it hazing, but horrific sexual violence against teammates um, in high school, you know, these kind of things, they come out all the time. I have horrible Google alerts. Like this is like a thing, but we don't really want to deal with it. It's much harder for us. Um, And I, it, the, the sort of parallel phenomenon is you get people, they always want to compare sort of fans are so willing to complain about, you know, this unfair foul call in this game than they are <laughs> to talk about the fact that they were on the court with a, you know, accused rapist. And it's like, well, yeah, like, of course they want to, re- they would much rather talk about foul calls. Like there's no risk involved. There's no responsibility in that. Like, Anyone can talk about that and not have to feel like they're making a big cultural decision about how we're going to manage a societal problem. <laughs> like, of course, that's mm. how it's going to work. Um, so, the, you know, it we like the easy conversations. Um, they're getting harder. Like people are having a harder time now um, with the, the problems of, you know, the kind of violence that 
players are doing and that coaches and ADs and university presidents are allowing to continue without any kind of accountability. Um, that's getting harder. And, you know, I do think in that way, Baylor is a watershed moment. Like I've heard people say like, how big a deal, what else were they going to do? They had to fire him. Like, no, they didn't. They've never, like, this is unprecedented as as far as I know. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have to do it. I didn't expect them to. And I didn't expect them to because we know how it works. We know how the system works and it protects football players and football coaches. And, um, so I don't even know where I was going with that. I think I went way off on a tangent, (laughs) but sort of the easy conversation, right? Like Mm. sports allow for easy conversations or it's easy to put stuff off on that other location, that other place. That's where you should, that's what you should be talking about. Not this one. Um, And people do that because it's hard. It's hard to talk about this. And especially when you care. Well, it's, it's the notion of sports as escape. And I think so many of us look to, you know, sports and the games we love in that way. Certainly I do um, as, as a chance to get away from some of the, the challenges in your individual life, some of the tough things. And there is no question that it is very uncomfortable and difficult when this thing that you look to as an escape, as a sort of lighthearted um, diversion, all of the sudden you have to confront some of this really serious, some of these really serious issues within the game, be they domestic violence, sexual assault, uh, you name it. Um, but uh, as you say, just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's not important. And, and you wrote, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful for, for your time and we could uh, discuss so many of these issues for, for hours and hours. I, I want to make sure we spend a little time because uh, you were talking about, and I think this is also a project that I'm personally very excited for and a lot of people. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, you wrote, Jessica, a piece a few months back for Fansided uh, entitled yeah. Being a Fan. And talking about your own personal, um, I don't know if struggle is the right word, but just That's the right challenge word. of, <laughs> in, in many ways, you talk about your own experience with uh, University of Texas. You are uh, in Austin. You are a big Longhorn fan and how challenging it is to maintain that when you are so you know frequently day in and day out exposed to the sordid side of sports, all of these issues, all of these unpleasant uh, stories underneath the surface. And it's a wonderful piece. I encourage everyone to to go check it out. And it also, um, in many ways, I think, um, I would imagine has sort of been a primer for another upcoming project that will be coming in 2018. You and Kavitha Davidson, who um, I was thrilled to have on this podcast a few weeks before, another just tremendous sports writer uh, and commentator. And the two of you will be working together on another book project titled How to Love Sports When They Don't Love You Back, which is a wonderful title, first and foremost. Mm. Um, I have yes, to it say. is. But um, we talked to Kavitha a little bit about this, but I would, I would just love to hear your thoughts as well on, on how this project came together. And it's such a it strikes me as such a timely book right now because it's something that's that's very much in the atmosphere there's such a renewed focus on the issues surrounding sports and society be it race gender violence you name it and it's such a fundamental question that i think so many people are grappling with is wait how do i continue to cheer for these teams and love these games when all of this is going on and and i'm so eager to to have you and kavitha um take on some of these questions yeah 
Uh, that fan-sided piece was so fascinating for me. I think they asked me to write it. I can't remember where it came from at this point. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't think it, like, I assumed that that was sort of, I mean, I have these conversations all the time. My, my friends are probably tired of them. Um, my <laughs> husband certainly is. But um, the reaction to that piece was just so crazy for me. Just so many people being like, thanks for writing this thing. We never talk about what we should. This is mm. how I feel, but I don't really acknowledge it. Just across. It was just fascinating for me to see how many, how much it resonated. Um, when I just thought I was writing, it's one of those moments where you're like, well, I'm writing the obvious thing. So <laughs> how could it have an impact? Cause everyone already knows it. But, um, so that was important for me. I had a friend who had sort of, in conversation said, Oh, it'd be so great if you wrote a how to novel or how to book on being a feminist sports fan. And that was sort of the first inkling I had of this. Mm. And then I just love Kavitha Davidson and we're buddies and this had somehow it came up in conversation. And I don't, I, you know what? I don't even remember sort of the moment where you decide we're going to write this <laughs> together. But, um, but the important thing is that the moment happened. Uh, yeah, and I would, I mean, Kavitha's amazing. She's Rock an amazing star. writer. She's a great thinker. She's the title maker. Like, you can tell we have this uh, we have this Google Doc of all the proposed chapter titles. Um, you know, how to love football when you know about CTE or how to watch tennis when you know it's racist and sexist or, like, whatever, you know, those kind of things. <laughs> and you can tell which ones are mine. Like, mine are just so bad and so dry. And you can tell, like, when Kavitha's gone back through to correct and make actual interesting (laughs) titles and you know and the book will tackle all sorts of stuff like obviously there's going to be a chapter on you know sexual violence but it will be about racism and sexism and money and sport and the exploitation of labor and um you know yeah homophobia transphobia like all these kind of things that make it hard to enjoy sport which is often seen as an escape like you said earlier and god you know like on some we're just working this out now but like what will be the answer how do you do it (laughs) um i don't i don't know right like hold your nose that's the Um, yeah (laughs) so it'll um but we're hoping to talk to a lot of different people about their ideas and um give all kinds of people um, that care about lots of different sports for lots of different reasons, a reason to pick up this book. Well, well, in talking to um, Kavitha a little bit about it, you know, she said something that I thought was was so profound and that I, I imagine I would I would guess this is something that you may echo as well. And it was another right. One of these concepts that was so simple and, and obvious, but made so much sense is, you know, we hear the question so often, how can you, you know, watch football when you know what it's doing to these players, how can you watch college, you know, March Madness when you know that these players are being exploited and not getting their fair mm-hmm. shake in terms of labor? And without a doubt, these are all really good and difficult questions. And I and I just so loved Kavitha's answer, which was basically, well, you know what, for me, like I have to write about these issues. I have to talk about these issues. And if I do that and if I confront them in my work and I you know, sound the alarm, so to speak, and at least we're having a conversation about it, that makes it that much easier in some sense and that much, you know, more possible at least to still watch the game, to still celebrate the aspects of it that are worth celebrating, the incredible, you know, physical feats that we see, the competition, all all the reasons that we love 
these games in the first place. And, and that's what I think is going to be so tremendous about the book is it will be a chance to go through these issues, to discuss them, to have the conversation, to put more attention on them and, you know, hopefully improve the games in some way and, and make it that much more possible to get back to enjoying them. Right. Yes. Well said. You should, <laughs> you should work at this that's, forest. That's what I'm looking forward to at least. And, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, that's the goal, right? Like, that's what we want to get out of it. And, you know, Kavitha says this really well, like, um, you know, when I watch, oh, God, I just had this moment um, with my husband, we were watching The Thunder, and it was that game with, is it Steve Adams? Yes, Steven and, Adams and um, <laughs> our wonderful game, New Zealand hero. Yes. And before the game, the, the Thunder had posted on Instagram a picture of, a, I think, a little girl, a, a child that had dressed up as Steve Adams yes. and was doing the thumbs up <laughs> in front of them. And I remember like we were watching the game and I said to my husband, I was like, so you see that guy right there because he was about to shoot foul shots. And, and I was like, let me show you this. And I show him the picture and he goes, oh, God, I thought I was just sure you're going to tell me that guy was a rapist. Oh. And I was like, yeah, that's a fair assessment when you're watching with me, <laughs> um, because I'm a real Debbie Downer with a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I can't turn that off. Like, I don't get to turn that off mm -hmm. because when I'm done Nor with the game, you. I'm going to get it. I'm going to go back to my email where a survivor has told me a horrible story about how they were treated by an athlete in the university, blah, 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 blah. Right. Like, I don't, I don't get that. Like, that's not an option for me. Kavitha is really good about articul articulating that, right? Like it's, it's about addressing the obvious, like I said before, but not for everyone, right? We all have a different sort of relationship to the sport for our, from our own personal experiences. One of the reasons we love sport is because we can bring our own stuff to it as we're watching it, right? Um, but for some of us with certain stuff, we can't help what we see when we're watching. And, you know, I hope that we can really tease at that and sort of how you maneuver around that and what can be done about it. Well, for anyone who who is a sports fan, who likes to read, who likes to, you know, delve into some of these topics, I, I can't urge everyone recommend enough. I mean, yeah, Unsportsmanlike Conduct coming in September of this year um, and look forward to, to checking that out and seeing right the, the result of of many years, a lifetime spent covering this very important issue of sexual assault surrounding college football and college campuses and then in 2018 we'll have to write wait a little bit longer but uh, again how to love sports when they don't love you back um, that will be coming from Jessica and Kavitha Davidson I, I want to just close Jessica and I, I can't thank you enough uh, for for taking the time and this has been such a wonderful conversation I want to close with something that um, I saw posted uh, I believe to your Facebook recently and it's a Sentiment that is, you know, surrounds so much of your work and is so important. Mm -hmm. and, and I've seen you um, sure. include some version of this in, in a lot of your articles, but it, it's it was articulated so well here. And I just want to uh, quote this quote, believing survivors remains a radical act in this culture we all live in. And I choose to remain radical. And that's something that I think is just a linchpin at so much of your work. It's such a profound thing to just sort of recognize that. That that very act, that just choosing to believe above all things first, not to add doubt, not to question, not to immediately assume that an accusation is not true, is still such a radical thing 
in our culture. And and yeah, I guess I would I would just um, just sort of ask how that informs so much of your work and how you think we can get to a place where that's just not your mentality, but the mentality of, of more people in, in sports. Yeah, I think one of the things I want to say about this is so I'm often met with, you know, innocent until proven guilty, which is certainly true if um, in the law court. Right. And I think what I want and what would be my dream is if we could hold the uncomfortable gray space between that and the idea that a person reporting could be telling the truth. Right. Mm -hmm. And we just don't have that. We skew so hard towards the idea that this person must be lying, must have ulterior, ulterior motives. Like the, that's the default. And I just, I don't need people to imagine like that all these men are perpetrators or, you know, like whatever. I just, I just, we need a a shift in the default of how we approach this stuff. Um, And I, you know, I don't, it's so hard. I mean, the one thing I recommend to any journalist who ever has to write on this, especially someone not trained in it, who doesn't normally do it, is I just ask them to think about the fact that whatever they write, a survivor will read it. And are they okay Mm -hmm. with that? You know, like are they okay with saying what they're going to say if they know that someone who has been raped is going to read what they had to say about this case? And I think that doesn't mean that you write that someone is guilty without knowing that. Um, That just means that you're just careful that you care. And the reason that survivors reach out to me is I think they can see that when they're reading my stuff or they hear me on TV or do radio interview or something, which is why whenever that happens, I get this sort of, I get an email an inbox yeah, full of, yeah. yeah. And they just want to tell somebody, they just want to tell somebody who won't shame them or who won't blame them or from the jump. Like they are just, you know, it's not even, it's just, I don't know. I don't know what, how you fix it overall. I don't know if there's ever an easy fix for something like this. Um, but yeah, I do wish, I mean, it, 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 every time I get this email, like I get, I recently had one from a case, someone wrote me in the, the reported rape was in in the late eighties and they're still dealing with this. Right. And they're still looking for people they can tell so that they can try to wash away the shame that was put on them back in the eighties. Um, I don't know. I don't know why that doesn't resonate for more people that that's how it works. Well, I I think how to get that across, you know, I I think the, I think Mm -hmm. the only solution and it's, it's certainly not an easy one, but it, but it is just, just empathy as you allude to. It's more people who approach these things in these ways. And, and you say it so well, it's no, it's not about, you know, (laughs) it's not about discarding our, you know, criminal burden of proof of innocent until proven guilty. Of course not. But it's about on a fundamental human level having empathy, having sympathy for a person's story, not immediately jumping to a place of scrutiny and questioning and, you know, allowing survivors and allowing victims to to tell their story. And it's, you know, it sounds simple, but 
clearly from the examples you cite in your own experiences of the number of people that have that have reached out to you it sounds like it should be basic but it's clearly not because there's a lot of people who don't find that everywhere they turn right right yeah and so I wish I had like a good sort of solution or something but um yeah just empathy is is a big one um I the other thing I always say is um whether or not you know it, you know a survivor of sexual mm. violence. And the fact that you don't know it probably says something about how you talk about it, how you talk about other victims, stuff like that. Or the experiences of that survivor have been so terrible in trying to tell their story that they hold it very close. Um, and I just, if everyone could just imagine anytime they're talking about this, that someone they care about, that is who they're talking about. Right. So you want to talk about that liar who is just a gold digger and is trying to get famous. You're ta- I mean, you're probably talking about someone very close to you as well. It's well, it, it's so profound and it's important. And I think that's that's probably a, a pretty good place to, to leave it. I just want to say um, for me personally, Jessica, and I know uh, I have no doubt that I am sort of speaking for a lot of people now, but just cannot thank you enough for the work that you do, the reporting, the dedication. This is, it goes without saying, not an easy field, not an easy uh, realm to work in. It's it's something that myself and a lot of people certainly uh, don't have the, the expertise and the tenacity um, to take on. And all I can say is is thank you for being one of those people who does have the the strength and the ability to shed light on all of these stories, for writing about them, for not being afraid to confront them when I know it, it means a lot of uh, a lot of pushback and a lot of challenges for you. But it is such important work. Um, I would write encourage everyone once again. September sixth, the new book arrives: Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football, and the Politics of Rape. Uh, I'm sure we will see be seeing much more from you and from Dan on the Baylor story, as well as a number of others. But Jessica, thank you so much for the work you do. And, and thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having this conversation. 